0: This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Pirates catcher Mike
1: Lavalier, card number 539.
0: Okay, Mike Lavalier. One of my favorites from my childhood as a Pirates fan, but before we get to Mike Lavalier, we do have some follow up from previous episodes.
1: I pronounced somebody's name wrong. Hall of Famer, Heine Manouche. Thank you, friend of the show, Mark Simon, for pointing out my mispronunci my mispronunciation. See, I can't even say mispronunciation right. It's gonna be a rough day. We got <laughs> Mike Lavalier, who I think on a previous episode maybe was cut from an episode where I called him Lavalier. I was thinking of my high school ge- geography teacher, Mr. Chevalier. It's a different guy. Matt, did you know I was student of the year in geography?
0: I believe it. It's, I believe
1: it. It's on my LinkedIn. We'll get back <laughs> to LinkedIn later on.
0: I have endorsed you for geo guessing <laughs> and Wikipedia rabbit hole diving. But now let's go to this week's card. And why are we talking about Mike Lavalier today?
1: We have only talked about three Pittsburgh Pirates. Thus far, we're up to 110 plus episodes, I think, and somehow only three Pittsburgh Pirates teams with the fewest players thus far Pirates, Blue Jays, Astros, Cardinals. So we will have to cover a few more of those in the weeks to come. But have no fear, we're not going anywhere. If we don't get to them within the next month, you're just going to be backloaded in 2030 with a year <laughs> full of Blue Jays and Cardinals. So if you Stick around. We're we're going to get to Lloyd Mosby. We're going to get to <laughs> Dave Steeb one of these days. I think somebody has requested Dave Steeb and we'll get there. But Mike Lavalier played for both your childhood favorite team, the Pirates, and my White Sox in the 90s. So holds a special place for both of us. There's also an outstanding Twitter handle at 1992Pirates. This Twitter account focuses on the 1986 to 1992 Pirates teams, and posts a ton of different videos, some that they have made, some that they have cobbled together from different sources and advertisements. And so we're going to be referencing a bunch of these videos that that Twitter account has posted of Mike LaVallier's greatest hits with the Pirates. I was in contact with them. We talked about how we need to have a Mike LaVallier Awareness Month.
0: <laughs> well, it starts today and it starts with this episode. So, Let's get to the front of 539, and here we have Michael Valher. This is a great-looking card. He's on one knee. He's on full photo pose mode, his bat leaning against one of his knees, both hands folded in front of him with batting gloves on. He's got the great hat. He's got a great smile. He's got a black warm-up jersey with the bucko on the front. He's got the white pants, he's got stirrups on, he's got pony shoes. This is a great look, and he is kneeling on what looks like the worst playing surface on planet Earth.
1: He is between two seams, but those are just a torn up ankle waiting to happen. You got the mustache. Mike Lavalier, known as Spanky in his playing days for his resemblance to the Little Rascals character, George Spanky McFarland. But this is good mustache, good-looking guy. This is also the second card that we've had with the lowercase letter, but just one lowercase Mm. letter. I think Duane Bice had a lowercase letter as well. But on baseball reference, it is L, lowercase a, capital V, Lavalier, And that's a French, a name of French origin, the family name meaning coming from the valley.
0: Either way, a strange typeface choice for... Tops Corporation on the front of this card, seeing as all the letters are normally capitalized. So throwing in that lowercase, very strange. But we will leave that for another conversation and go to the back of 539, where we have Mike LaValliere, catcher, height 5'10", weight 190, left-handed batter, and right-handed thrower. Signed by the Phillies in 1981 as a free agent. Born August 18th, 1960 in Charlotte, no care. Charlotte, North Carolina with a home in St. Petersburg, Florida.
1: I have not seen no car used as a North Carolina abbreviation. I don't know why they didn't use NC. That seems like it would have saved some space. Charlotte, no car. Mike Lavalier grew up in New Hampshire, but as the card states, he was born in no car. His father... Guy, or Guy Lavalier, was born in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1931, and he was a minor league catcher. He was a very good hitter at the lower levels for the Orioles organization, hitting in the 320s for a couple lower minor league teams. In fact, his minor league average was 296, so a very good hitting catcher, but he topped out at A. He also played for Washington and Minnesota's organizations, never made it beyond A. Another catcher in the O's system around that time was Cal Ripken Sr. Cal Sr. was a couple years younger than Guy, and he was Guy's backup at Phoenix in 1957. The two catchers go their separate ways, but there is a parallel here. In 1960, is playing catcher for the Charlotte Hornets, alongside Rex Chapman, Kendall Gill, and Kelly Trapuca. Famous actual Charlotte Hornets baseball players include Van Lingle Mungo, Early win, Harmon Killebrew, Tony Oliva, and Greg Nettles. Also Archibald Moonlight Graham, made famous in Field of Dreams, played there briefly in 1902. But in 1960, Guy is there playing at the O's A-level affiliate in Charlotte. On August 18th, Baby Spanky is born in Charlotte, North Carolina. That night, Guy goes out, goes two for two with a double, two runs scored in a 5-1 win over Jacksonville. Six days later, On August 24th, Cal Ripken Jr. is born in Maryland. His dad, Cal Sr., was playing at Topeka for Earl Weaver's Fox Cities Club. He celebrated by driving in a run for the Fox Cities team in a 10-inning victory. And neither of those big league dads played in Major League Baseball. Both of their sons would make it to the bigs 20-plus years later. So really kind of neat little parallel of the second-generation catcher's only one of whom played catcher in the majors. 1961 would be Guy's final year in baseball, after which he would return the family to Manchester, New Hampshire. Manchester is the largest city in the upper Northeast. That's Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Population over 115,000. Other famous Mancunians or manchester Adam Sandler, Steve Balboni, and Sarah Silverman, all three greats, grew up there. Also phenomenal Smith, not a phenomenal baseball player in the 1800s but a phenomenal nickname. He was later a player manager for the Phenoms of Portland and later the Phenoms of Norfolk, teams named after him. With the Norfolk club, he discovered Christy Mathewson. And he got that nickname actually because as he got called up to the majors, he said, I'm so good, I don't even need the team behind me. His team went on to purposefully make a bunch of errors (laughs) leading Phenomenal Smith to give up 18 runs in a performance (laughs) that immediately gets sent down to the Biders. He had a a long career. He was an okay pitcher, but for that one performance, uh, he earned the name Phenomenal Smith. He retired to Manchester where he became a local policeman. Spanky went to Trinity High in Manchester, New Hampshire. Other alumni include Cy Young award winner Chris Carpenter, Olympic race walker Joanne Dow, and Archbishop Lacroix of Quebec. While at Trinity, Lavalier was a multi-sport athlete playing baseball, football, hockey, and soccer. He is listed on this card at 5'10", 190, but he never really looked like anything but a catcher. So it's interesting to think about him being a multi-sport athlete. But all those sports, I think Spanky's size and shape could work out. He was nicknamed Spanky due to that resemblance to Spanky from The Little Rascals. Spanky McFarland was in 95 R Gang films. I have a little side-by-side here of young Spanky and young Spanky.
0: Yeah, I would say, I say the resemblance is fine. I think the big thing is just, it's just the baby face, right? So he's just got the baby face. I think the resemblance is good enough.
1: I don't know if Spanky and the Little Rascals was known for being like kind of chubby. I kind of got that impression with the nickname Spanky, but I always thought it was kind of an unflattering nickname. He just has a baby face. He grew that mustache, and he doesn't really look like a baby anymore, but still kind of has a little bit of a round look.
0: Yeah, I would say catchers in general end up with nicknames like Pudge. All
1: of them are named Pudge, yeah. Yeah. So many named Pudge. Pudge, Chunk. Spanky. (laughs) Round, round boy. In high school, LaVallier wasn't a catcher. He was a pitcher and a shortstop. And he was a really good one. His youth team won the Babe Ruth League World Series in 1976. And he was that tournament's MVP. He starred in baseball and hockey particularly. And when he was a pro, he would recall his greatest sporting memory was a hockey memory.
0: Yeah, he said, we were playing a team from Berlin, New Hampshire. And no team from Manchester had ever beaten them in hockey. There were four teams in Manchester and none had won. But we went up there and beat them. Lavallier had a hat trick and scored the winning goal in overtime, which sounds like a dream come true.
1: He grew up a fan of all of the Boston teams, Celtics, Bruins, Red Sox. His first major league stadium visit was to Fenway, but out of high school, he wasn't drafted to play baseball. He had some Canadian junior hockey interest, and he had an offer to play baseball at a college in Florida, but he wanted to play both. So he decided to go somewhere that had both a baseball and hockey team. He went to UMass Lowell, and they were going to give him the opportunity to play both sports. And he sort of got an opportunity. Mike thought he was a better hockey player than baseball player. But when he got to Lowell, he realized he wasn't even good enough for that Division II hockey team. Two of the three years that he was at Lowell, they were Division II national champs. They had a future NHL player, Craig McTavish, on the team. And if you look at the notable athletes from this school, it's a bunch of NHL players, a a silver medalist in women's rowing, and Mike Lavalier. Lavalier said he would have maybe dressed for some games, but he was never going to crack the starting lineup. That pushed him over to baseball, which made his baseball coach happy because he didn't want his shortstop third base recruit to be lost due to a hockey injury.
0: And he responded by... Starring for the Riverhawks, he's fourth in the school's record books for career batting average, fifth in career home runs, fifth in slugging percentage, and ninth in career total bases, and ranked in seven other categories in the record book in baseball for UMass Lowell. It didn't earn him a spot in the draft, though, but he was signed as a free agent by the Phillies, and he started in Spartanburg.
1: His first year, he played 39 games, 18 of them at third base, and the rest as a DH. He hit two hundred sixty eight and he walked a lot. Throughout his career, Lavalier would walk more than he struck out almost every season, didn't have much power at all, hit about two hundred sixty eight most of his career, and just got on base. But this year, he had a .413 on-base percentage, pretty good eye for a youngster. The Phillies also had a 19-year-old catcher, Darren Dalton who started at Spartanburg for them at, at, behind the plate. And those players would move up in tandem. Both of them moved up to high A Peninsula the next year. And this is the gives us the first part of our fun fact, which is, I, I dare say, an actual fun fact.
0: Yes, the fun fact on the back of the card is that Mike converted from a third baseman to a catcher at Peninsula in the Carolina League in 1982. In spring training
1: of 1982, Mike was moved to catcher. He didn't love the idea and said, what if I don't want to catch? And they said, well, then you can just go home. So Lavalier found his new gear and found a new calling and moved behind the plate. He backed up Dalton, played 46 games at catcher, had 10 pass balls, which is kind of a lot. Dalton had 14 in twice as many games. But Lavalier dedicated himself to learning the position and getting better behind the plate. He watched Dalton learn from his teammate who had played catcher all his life. And he also said, even though he had no experience, that wasn't a hindrance. He also didn't have any bad habits to learn his way out of. He credited his minor league managers, Roley DeArmas and P.J. Carey with helping him through the Philly system. Both of those guys were catchers before their coaching careers.
0: Lavalier was able to get at bats both as a DH and as the backup catcher. He hit 275, walked more than he struck out. Again, no power, only two home runs, and moves up to double A Reading the next year along with Darren Dalton. Dalton played 94 games behind the plate, and Lavalier played 49. Dalton was the power guy, he hit 19 home runs that year. Spanky was the contact hitter. He hit 294 with only four home runs.
1: 1984, he split time between AA and AAA. He only hit 252 at Reading, but does get a second part of that fun fact.
0: Yeah, that he was named to the Eastern League All-Star Team at Reading in 1984. And he earned a promotion. He hit even better the second half of the year in AAA, 312. Darren Dalton hit near three hundred at AAA as well. I like the story so far, because it's the two players being moved up together in the same position, and they're both getting better as they go along.
1: And I think, as we know from previous episodes, the Phillies were wealthy in catching talent. Lavalier gets called up briefly, playing six games in September that year. He didn't get a hit, went 0 for 7. The Phillies had now Lavalier, Ozzy Virgil, Bo Diaz. They have Dalton playing pretty well at AAA. So with this wealth of riches behind the plate, they decided to make a move. So Lavalier gets traded, or not, or traded, or released, or signed as a free agent. It's pretty confusing on his baseball reference page. December 3rd, 1984, he is sent to the Cardinals by the Phillies as part of a conditional deal. There is supposed to be a player to be named later. Instead, there is a headline, Catcher Mike Lavalier Must Feel Like a Hot Potato. December 13th, 1984, he's returned by the Cardinals to the Phillies as part of a conditional deal. So I guess the condition was, you aren't going to send us an injured player. Two days after he had been traded, Lavalier goes to his doctor, says his right knee is bothering him, and he goes for surgery for cartilage repair. So the Phillies offer to cancel the trade. The Cardinals accept that offer. But the Phillies didn't have room at this point on their 40-man roster for Lavalier. He said he felt like he was being used by the Phillies who wanted to sign him to a minor league contract and then trade him away. So the Phillies have 10 days to figure out what to do with him. December 23rd, he's granted free agency. January 23rd of the next year, he signed as a free agent with the Cardinals. So the Cardinals get their guy. LaVallier gets out of Philadelphia. He didn't necessarily want to he wasn't happy about being traded. He felt kind of disrespected. And he said, every time I go against the Phillies, there's
0: something extra there. A little bit of a vendetta burning. That sounds great. 1985, he starts with the big league club with the Cardinals. He hits 147 in his first 11 games. Not so great. So he gets sent down to AAA and hits 204 for the year. This is 1985 where the Cardinals made the World Series, but Lavalier wasn't with the big league club at any other time that year. In 1986, he plays the full season with the Cardinals, though, and has a notable achievement in June.
1: His first series against the Phillies, he said, I wanted to embarrass them. He hit his first major league home run in that series. So knowing what we know about Spanky, not a lot of power. So that burning vengeance against Philadelphia. He ended up hitting two of his three home runs that year against Philadelphia. The Cardinals fell off from their NL champ 1985 season and were under 500 in 1986 Behind the plate, they had Lavalier hitting 234, splitting time with Mike Heath. Heath was even worse at the plate. He hit 205. Lavalier was really good defensively. So, coming out four years after learning to play the position, he had 1.4 defensive war, which was 10th best in the National League, 6th best among all catchers. He also caught 41% of base thieves. So, that third base arm translates behind the plate. That 41% Caught stealing percentage was third best in the National League. He also had a 988 fielding percentage. And so going into 1987, the Cardinals are looking at their catching situation. They had traded away Mike Heath to the Tigers. So this leaves Lavalier and Steve Lake as the Cardinals platoon. Both of those guys were light hitting catchers. Both of them would need to be pinch run for late in games. And the Cardinals were looking for a change.
0: Yeah, so in spring training. The Cardinals split their squad into A and B squads, and the B squad had games in the morning. And then the A-, A squad was having the regular spring training game in the afternoon. And on April 1st, the coach came out and told LaValliere and Andy Van Slyke that they weren't going to be playing in the A game in the afternoon. And Spanky is confused because Steve Lake had just caught nine innings in the B game in the morning. So he thought for sure he'd be playing in the afternoon. And then realizes, oh, that means I'm getting traded. <laughs> and according to reports, LaVallier and Van Slyke discussed their fate and their potential. And they decided there were two places they did not want to go, Montreal and Pittsburgh.
1: Pittsburgh had finished last, the three seasons prior, losing 98 games in 1986. There's still this cloud of the drug trials looming overhead It had a bad reputation as a team and even as a destination for players. It was kind of Pittsburgh in the mid 80s was not necessarily the, the glitzy destination that a player wanted to go to. As we know from three
0: previous episodes, we have the This Way to the Clubhouse the Lavalier was traded by the Cardinals to the Pirates with Mike Dunn and Andy Van Slyke for Tony Pena, April 1st, 1987. The circle of this trade is now fully complete, David. We don't
1: ever have to talk about any of these guys again. I'm sure we're going to talk about Ex- all of them.
0: Except we will a lot.
1: <laughs> the Cardinals got their guy. Their GM said, in Tony Pena, we're getting one of the premier players in the game. Pena was a three time gold glove winner, four time all star in Pittsburgh. He could command a pitching staff. He could hit. He was even a good base runner. And the Pittsburgh Post Gazette was not happy about the trade. Their reporter said, sorely in need of a starting pitcher, a first rate shortstop, and a right handed power hitter, the Pirates conspired to give away an all star catcher without obtaining any of the three. As it would turn out, they got a good power hitter in Andy Van Slyke. An all-star rookie season of a great starting pitcher in Mike Dunn. Lavalier wasn't happy about the move, but he wanted to make the most of it. He was better able to accept this trade. So while he still had some motivation against St. Louis, he said there wasn't any malice there. He respected Jim Leland and was excited about the team that they were building. Leland said of Lavalier, if there's one thing I'm sure of, Mike Lavalier will not become a sex symbol.
0: Wait, hold up. Hold on. Don't yuck people's yum. Jim Leland.
1: And this is from a Pittsburgh Press article that said, Lavalier looks good playing. I don't know. They just, they talk about Mike Lavalier's looks a lot. I think he's a cute guy. Look at that mustache. He's... What's that to like?
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: This team had been ugly in years prior, but they finished 80 and 82, much better than the previous three seasons.
0: I like Lavalier's attitude coming into this as well. He said, I'm not professing to be as good as Tony Pena. I don't think I can make anyone forget Tony Pena. I'm not going to fill his shoes, just use a different pair. And that's what I remember about with Mike Lavalier is that he had a great arm. I remember that as the team got good in the late 80s and early 90s, that they were a good defensive team. And Lavalier seemed to fit in with that very well.
1: And he wasn't a liability either at the plate or behind the plate. Oftentimes he was platooned with a right-handed hitter. In the early years, it was with Junior Ortiz and later with Don Slot. And so you have a guy who can hit 280, make contact, take walks, and is solid behind the plate and solid calling a game. The Pirates didn't necessarily expect that they were going to get a gold glove catcher, but Lavalier had a fantastic season defensively in that first year, playing 121 games. He won the gold glove. And unlike some 80s award winners, he deserved it. In catcher total zone runs, he's on the all-time leaderboard for his 1987 season. He was worth 15 runs behind the plate. 2.2 defensive war, led the National League in caught stealing 45%, turned 11 double plays, and had a 992 fielding percentage. On top of that great defense, the last line on this card, he hit 300. Still only a little power, one home run, he made good contact, Struck out only 32 times. That one home run was off of Nolan Ryan. So pretty good pitcher. Also that season, he was inducted into the Trinity High School Athletics Hall of Fame. Similarly big honor to National League Gold Glove. In
0: 1988, the Pirates finished 10 games over 500, And Lavalier played in 120 games, platooning with Junior Ortiz. In April, he was the National League Player of the Week for April 24th and he was hitting four hundred and four through that date. Overall, hit two hundred and sixty-one with two homers, a career-high 47 RBIs, and walked 50 times with an OPS-plus of over 100. And as we discussed in the Ron Karkovice episode, OPS-plus of 100 is average for the league, but most catchers are well below average, so having an OPS-plus over 100 puts him in rarefied air.
1: Yeah, particularly for this short stretch of the late 80s, early 90s, 261, it's not so bad for a catcher. His 35% caught stealing was a little bit down, but he's still one of the better defensive catchers in the league. And only two seasons in, Lavalier had become a a household face in Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah, Giant Eagle, the grocery chain in the Pittsburgh area, started putting him in their ads, not just having him as a spokesperson. David, we've got a link here to a Giant Eagle ad or as as I should say, the giant eagle, John Eagle properly. There's no T in in giant eagle.
1: And there's no E or A in eagle, I think. John Eagle. And thanks again to at 1992 Pirates for posting this advertisement from the August 21st, 1988 Pittsburgh Press, how to keep a catcher behind
0: the plate. Yeah, I'm just going to, let me read and describe this ad. So It's got Mike LaValliere there. It doesn't say his name. It just has him in a backwards hat and his chest protector. And it's like he's sitting at the kitchen table with his arms on the table behind an empty plate. And the text says, if you've got a family that keeps stepping behind the plate, the best place to load up with food is John Eagle. Because only John Eagle has absolute minimum prices on everything in the store every day. It goes on from there, but David, what you notice here is that here's a player that's only been in Pittsburgh two years, and the assumption is that everyone in the freaking city knows exactly who this guy is. I guess if you're in Pittsburgh, you just assume like, well, it's the Pirates
1: catcher. But it's still very strange to me that this is something that has changed over the last 35 years, and we've talked about, I think, with Tommy Lasorda, the just the stature and the ubiquitousness of baseball as a cultural phenomenon. And maybe it's different in Pittsburgh's slightly smaller city. But just thinking about baseball players in Chicago right now, you see Tim Anderson on some ads, but it also says, I'm Tim Anderson and I support this this message. Whatever. You don't just see like this ad with you would even expect it to say in tiny writing like Pittsburgh Pirates catcher, Mike Lavalier or something.
0: But there's nothing. It's just it's just spanky. Here is also a catcher who normally has a mask on half of the time that he's playing. And he's that famous. This is not the four-time winning Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, right? This is not Terry Bradshaw on this on this ad, right? So it's pretty impressive.
1: 1989 ends up being a down year as the Pirates finish under five hundred. Barry Bonds and Andy Van Slyke both had down years on a team with a lot of injuries. To that end, Lavalier tore a ligament in his left knee in a collision in April, which required surgery, and he ended up sitting out until the 4th of July. He only caught 18% of base thieves, but he hit 316 over 68 games that year.
0: 1990 begins the three-year run of Pirates playoff seasons. They brought in Don Slot to be the right-handed bat in that platoon at catcher. And a second, very good mustache, to, as part of that platoon as well. Spanky hit 258 with an on-base percentage 100 points higher than that, and Don Slot hit 300. So the catcher spot was reliable in production, and LeValier was truly a fan favorite by this point. What's not to like about a a friendly catcher who some might call squat? <laughs> Who plays great defense and puts the ball into play. And Lavalier spoke about his weight, which American culture loved to to talk about, loved to tease players whose bodies were different. He said, My weight fluctuates between 195 and 205, but my height fluctuates from city to city. Sometimes I'm 5'7, in some cities, I'm 5'10 in the program, because the scout who signed me listed me that way to legitimize the money he spent.
1: Also about his weight, Andy Van Slyke once said of Lavalier, he ruins it for the rest of the players. He's 40 pounds overweight, and he goes up and gets a hit. Then the guy in the stands with three beers who's 40 pounds overweight says, hey, I can do that too. I don't know that Lavalier was 40 pounds overweight. I also don't know if 205 is, is the correct weight for Lavalier in some of these cards. But we celebrate all shapes and sizes here at the 1988 Tops podcast. And he was a style icon.
0: No doubt about it. We have this tweet here from at 1992 Pirates that showed Spanky modeling lots of different fashions. The summer collection from Oscar de la Valliere, instead of Oscar de la Renta. You've got la Valliere with a green baseball cap backwards. We've got the, what looks like a starter jacket kind of look in the second one you've got the black bucko t-shirt which i love and then the third one we've got a very nice club jacket with a pink hat
1: you can get all of these at the pirates clubhouse stores at the Monroeville mall weston william penn logan valley mall allegheny center mall and 47 participating giant eagle stores you could get the pink hat at the grocery store
0: I would do that. It makes a great gift. I'll be heading to Pittsburgh in the next week. so Stop by the Giant Eagle sold... and get some... I will be looking for all of these looks. I'll see what I can pick up to, to bring home.
1: Levalier was also involved in a prank on Doug Draybeck oh, early in 1990, yes. in which he and some teammates and maybe some clubhouse guys put some stolen goods from the clubhouse in the trunk of Drebeck's car. And as he's leaving the stadium, Draybeck gets pulled over.
0: I'm really sorry to ask you. We had a major robbery at the stadium last night, and, and we're checking everybody in and out. It's just for insurance purposes. All we need to do, I just need to check your... I know, I realize that, I'm sorry. Right. Well, you need just, we need back. to look in the trunk real quick. I really apologize. Have the trunk. We
1: enlisted the, uh, the services of uh, Michael Vollier to, to make sure That's good. and prod Doug, in case Doug, for some reason, said, I'm not gonna do this.
0: I really apologize. It's just insurance. Oh, I'm sorry. Are these yours? Oh, holy cow, Dougie. Did you... It's part of, part of what was taken. Pirates won 95 games in 1990 and made the playoffs against the Reds. But LaVallia's first postseason didn't go so well. He went 0-6 in three games. He did have three walks, so he got on base some. But the Pirates lost... In six games. Grandma's Red Scorebook celebrates. 1991, Lavalier and Don Slot still split time. Spanky hitting 289 with three homers and 41 RBIs, and the Pirates win 98 games that season, earning a spot in the NLCS again against the worst to first Braves. Lavalier went 0 for 2 with a walk in the game three loss. And then in game four, he comes in as a
1: pinch hitter against righty Mark Wohlers. Lavalier hit 301 versus righties. Slot, while right handed, hit 340 versus righties. So it was a little bit of an odd move to pinch hit him, but Jim Leland was playing the general odds rather than the specifics of the 1991. The percentages worked out. With Steve Bouchel on first base, Andy Van Slyke on second, Lavalier hits a single to right field, drives in Van Slyke. Bouchel is thrown out, but the Pirates take the lead. And this is. The first playoff hit for Mike LaVallier, a huge one for the Pirates as they win the game to tie the series 2-2. Two to two. Spanky said of that moment, I don't know if my heart could take that seven days a week, but I loved it. It was a matter of survival. It was very primitive to see the ball, hit the ball. That's all it was. And that was Spanky's mindset in the playoffs that year. Unfortunately, he played the complete game of Game 7, going one for three in the loss that sent the Pirates home in 1991.
0: In 1992, the last hurrah for this Pirates run, prior to the season, Mike signed a three-year deal that was worth around $6 million, and that's a lot of money for a catcher in Pittsburgh. He had a major career highlight that year, too. He made it to the championship game of the locker room Nerf basketball tournament.
1: (laughs) Andy Van Slyke had installed a Nerf, I've seen it called a Nerf hoop, but in the video, it looks more like a, I don't know, like a half-size basketball hoop. The ball seems to bounce better than a Nerf ball. He installed this in the clubhouse, and there were these intense tournaments. And in one of them, LaVallier beat Bonds, Bonilla, and Van Slyke before facing Curtis Wilkerson in the finals. And there is audio of Marv Albert calling the shots. In the first quarterfinal, it's Bobby Bonilla against Mike LaVallier. Bonilla rims the basket. Spanky with a shot at the win yes the university of new hampshire wildcats the first team in the final four that's right ladies and gentlemen
0: you... these games looked intense they are apparently were so intense that they led to disputes and teammates refusing to talk to one another but a good way to keep that competitive edge going throughout the season and definitely something that you would see on a winning team in the clubhouse rather than a losing team so a good sign of the team working well together. On the field, LaValier had a down year, hitting 256 in 95 games, but they made it back to the playoffs and made it back to face Atlanta again in the National League Championship Series. Once again, LaValier didn't have much success at the plate in the playoffs, two for 10 in three games with one run scored. But most notably, he was behind the plate for all of Game 7 and for the play that was the last play that I was a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates in the bottom of the ninth up to one with the bases loaded and two outs and Francisco Cabrera at the plate the unlikeliest of heroes wins the National League Championship
1: Series for the Atlanta Braves Francisco Cabrera who had only 10 at bats in the major leagues during the regular season single through the left side scoring Sid Bream From second base with the winning run, Bream, who's had five knee operations in his lifetime, just beat the tag of his ex-mate Mike LaVallier. And Atlanta pulls out game seven with three runs in the bottom of the ninth inning. What happened here is a little bit in question. If you watch the video, Bream's foot maybe goes over the plate. At the time, there was no video replay. The umpire was right there. He was looking at it. Lavalier thinks to this day that he got the tag on him. That throw wasn't great. It was a little too far up the first baseline. If it was a little bit closer, Lavalier's able to block the plate. But Lavalier said, when you do a bent leg slide, your top foot is in the air. Whenever you're going into one of the bases, it's no problem because the base is up in the air. But because home plate is closer to the ground level with the dirt, You can't slide into home and dig your spikes in, or you'll break your ankle. He said, in my opinion, his front foot slid over the plate, and I tagged his back knee before he was able to get to the plate. Spanky also later worked for ESPN, and he had them look at the video, and he looked at the video, and from many angles, he said it was inconclusive. He also said, Randy Marsh made the call. He was a very good umpire. I would never consider it a bogus call, but it was close. He called what he saw. He was in a perfect position and was a darn good umpire. We can't look back and point fingers at him for that call. It's really hard to tell. It's a close play. Lavalier is a great catcher, and that's he did his best on that. Like there's no shame in Lavalier's effort on that play.
0: He did the very best he could. That was the fall of nineteen ninety-two. I decided to drop the Pirates and shift my focus to going to high school.
1: You know, it turns out that the Pirates management also decided to drop their interest in the Pirates.
0: Exactly. Meanwhile, the Pirates start dismantling the team. Lavalier played for one game, went one for five, and the Pirates released him. 12 of the 25 players from that 1992 season were gone. By 1993, by releasing Lavallier the Pirates had to pay him $2 million that season and another $1.9 million in 1994. That's $4 million to go away. And Lavallier wasn't bitter. He just wasn't part of their plans. He said, I love this city. I've had a tremendous time in this locker room playing on three division championship teams, but maybe releasing him caused a curse. It was 20 years before
1: the Pirates had another winning season in 2013. There is an article in the Lowell Sun that in 2009 called it the curse of Spanky.
0: Yeah, maybe releasing him caused a curse.
1: Maybe releasing half of your players and then doing a very bad job of signing new players. Forever.
0: Forever. Forever. So after being released, he signs a minor league deal with the White Sox, played a couple months in Sarasota, and then got called up to the White Sox june twentieth, nineteen ninety-three. Carlton Fisk
1: played his final game for the White Sox two days later, and Spanky replaced Pudge in the ninth inning of that game. Fisk was released the next week. Lavalier backed up Ron Karkovice for the rest of the season, playing thirty eight games. He hit two fifty-eight, and for the first time in his career he struck out more than he walked. Runners maybe saw an older Lavalier behind the plate and thought they could take advantage of him. And they were wrong. He threw out 24 (laughs) of 32 would-be base thieves. That's 75% success rate on caught stealing. So he still has a great arm, still a very good defensive catcher. He goes on to play in a fourth straight league championship series. He went one for three in the Sox six-game series loss to the Blue Jays.
0: He played in the shortened 1994 and 1995 seasons, a combined 100 games, hitting two sixty six for the White Sox. He hit a home run on August 7th, 1994, which was the last White Sox home run before the strike ended, one of the biggest what if seasons in White Sox history. Lavalier was a union rep for the players during the strike and was outspoken. He said he hoped Jerry Reinsdorf didn't take it personally. Reinsdorf did keep him around for 1995, but that was the end of the road for Spanky. He called it a career after that. And closing the book on Mike Lavalier, 12 seasons in the major leagues. 268 average, 18 home runs. In his career, he walked 321 times compared to 244 strikeouts and an OPS plus of 93. He won the gold glove in 1987, was 26th overall in career total zone runs by a catcher tied with Tony Pena and a defensive war of 10 for his career, which is 58th among catchers all time.
1: And Matt, we do have a loves to face and then grab a... A hates to face from his stats. But his career stats against the Phillies, if we'll recall his vendetta, he hit a career 303 against the Phillies. 35 points higher than his career average. Four of his 18 home runs were against the Phillies. That's the most against any team. So he did hold that grudge for his entire career. So how about in retirement? LaVallier and his wife, Judy, had four kids. He went into some real estate work in New Hampshire and later was coaching at a high school in Florida. At one point, he was a roving minor league catching instructor under Lloyd McClendon. And although LaVallier wasn't angry about the call on the tag from Randy Marsh, he did tell a story that when he was a roving instructor, he saw Randy Marsh at a spring training game and he said, I just lost it. I just started screaming, and all these young players are looking at me like, who is this screwball? And it wasn't about the tag. It was about the strike zone that Randy Marsh had in that game. And if you look, (laughs) in that ninth inning, Damon Berryhill gets a walk, and there's some pretty clear strikes that are called as as balls. Lavalier claims that throughout the game, Randy Marsh called a a bad strike zone. I think 20 years later or so, he he still had a little bit of, of rage against Randy Marsh. LaVallier and Don Caveman Robinson also at one point co- co-owned a baseball training facility in Florida for a few years. He served as an analyst for ESPN, for Little League Games, and recently he's been the catching coordinator for IMG Academy in Florida. On LinkedIn, Mike LaVallier is endorsed in, quote, baseball. I mean, I think that this 1988 Tops card is a, an endorsement in baseball. He's endorsed by Kent Tekulve. Mm. This tells us two things. One, I'm not going to get an endorsement in baseball from Kent Ticolvi. But two, Kent Ticolvi is on LinkedIn. Yes. He's looking for opportunities. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what kind of career opportunities Kent Ticolvi. I I need to look at that resume. Endorsed in glasses and large hats. So Mike LaVallier had this 12-year career. And he played for your childhood team and my childhood team. He won a gold glove. That's pretty good for a guy who didn't play catcher until he was two years into his professional career. A guy who thought he was better at hockey than baseball, and yet he couldn't even make his college's hockey team. And he's a guy you really couldn't help but like. When he came to the White Sox, it always seemed like he played hard. He threw out base runners. And this is after the Pirates had just kind of tossed him aside. And like you said, you knew what you were going to get from LaVallier. He wasn't going to hit 30 home runs but he also wasn't going to let you down. Lavalier said of himself, I'm just a normal person who happens to be playing baseball. I think it's nice people can identify with me. I come to work. I bust my butt. I go home. I have a beer. This is a hard work in town. They like to watch me and I like them. That's kind of how I think about Mike Lavalier. Impossible not to like this guy. I didn't find anywhere where somebody is like talking about a feud with Mike. Nobody's got beef (laughs) with Mike Lavalier." Except maybe no, and, he could go get some beef at Giant Eagle.
0: Yeah, and that's how I felt too. That 92 team had a lot of strong personalities. You have the wisecracking Andy Van Slyke. You've got Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla, who are superstars, who are league wide superstars. And LeValier just had a, you know, because of his looks and because of his talent, he had an everyday guy quality that it was easy for the city to like and for fans to like wherever they were so i i always had a soft spot for him and i'm glad that we could talk about him more today and so i really thank you for the story today and thank you for listening at home and if you've ever been endorsed by the rubber band man on linkedin we would love to hear about it on twitter we're at tops 1988 Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.